So Christianity deals in the spectacular. It deals in the spectacular. It's true that we often talk at Church of the Cross about the reality that God is at work in the mundane and the ordinary. We, we emphasize that. And God does indeed work through the stuff of the everyday. Hard work, relationships, study, family. But even as we affirm that reality, we can't forget as the church, as the people of God, that, um, that at the heart of our faith is the spectacular. The miracle of Jesus being raised from the dead is the cornerstone, it's the foundation of all Christian hope and all of Christian faith. And and it forms the basis of um, our belief about the future that we too will be raised, a belief which in and of itself is spectacular. We will be raised to newness of life, that, that all of the world will be infused with the power and the grace of God. And the reality of the spectacular isn't limited to just the physical realm. It's not limited to just these kinds of of miracles. There are the realities, very real and true, but yet unseen realities, of God's love for his people and of his forgiveness for sinners that truly warm our hearts and set us free from guilt and from shame and from our past that shackle us again and again. There's God welcoming welcoming us, God pouring out his spirit into us and enabling us to partake of his life, God pardoning us and continuing with us in the day-to-day. These are actually spectacular things in reality. And they're all the more spectacular in the light of how finite, how weak, how fickle, um, how compromised we know ourselves to be as human beings. So the consistent theme through all of the spectacular in the Christian life uh, is simple. It's actually life. The spectacular is life. God is a God of life. God is a God of abundant life. God is a God who longs to give life. Resurrection, which is again that core of the spectacular, is about life triumphing over death. It's about, um, uh, it's about the best that we can think of prevailing over the hardships and the, the, the hardness of the world in which we live. Forgiveness, love, belonging, welcoming, cleansing, all of these too are about life about freeing us from the stuff on the inside that, that constrains us and that, um, that minimizes us as people. And then community and relationships, reconciliation, fellowship, the koinonia we talked about a few weeks ago, these too have to do with life. Love how the psalmist puts it about God, for with you is a fountain of life, the fountain of life. So God is a God of life. The spectacular of Christianity is the, spect- the spac- spectacularness of life. And the earliest missional family that we're looking at in these early chapters of Acts knew something about the spectacular. Many of their members were actually eyewitnesses to the resurrection of Jesus. So they saw Jesus after his resurrection. And then they had the day of Pentecost when the Spirit came in power and and many of them were able to speak in tongues that they had never studied uh, in class. They they just spoke in these foreign languages um, about the God of life. And then many were baptized and repented and were baptized and they received forgiven and they received the Holy Spirit. And that was an experience of life. And then they lived in community, enjoying worship and fellowship and having glad and generous hearts, caring for one another, giving up their resources to meet the needs of others. And this was something supernatural. This was something that was full of life um, as they had belonging and joy and peace and praise. And then there was this miracle that we looked at last week in Acts chapter 3 
about a lame man, a man who had been lame from birth, he was at least 40 years old, who had been carried every day to the temple gate to beg for alms, to beg for, for money. And Peter and John walk up to him and they look at him in the eyes and they say, you know, silver and gold we do not have, but what we have we give to you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Rise up and walk. And Luke records for us that instantly his ankles and his feet were strengthened and he stood up and walking and leaping and he entered the temple and was praising God. And so there was this spectacular moment, again, added to these others in the early church. And all of these spectacular things actually drew the attention of others. People were drawn to this. They, they were wondering, what's going on? So at Pentecost, they were asking questions of Peter. They were wondering if these men were actually drunk. In the early community summary in Acts 2, it says that they were having favor with all the people. People were seeing something going on. This spectacular thing of God's life being poured out upon his people was drawing people in. And then again in Acts 3, when this lame man is healed, and they see him walking around in the temple. Now, this guy had been at the temple gate routinely, day after day after day. If there's perhaps a homeless person that you see on your commute to work every day, that would be the same kind. You know where he is, you know what he's going to say, you you know a little bit more about him. You kind of expect him. This is who that man was in their day in, 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 in Jerusalem. So there was no doubt when they saw this man, many of them knew this man. They knew his face. They knew his routines. They knew what he asked for. And here he was leaping and praising, and they were drawn in. They were amazed with wonder, Luke says, and then he says that they were astounded. And so they start chasing down Peter and John in Solomon's portico in the temple. And they want to know what's going on. They've got these questions. Before I get to that, let me just say the first thing to affirm um, from this this section that we're looking at in Acts 3. When, when, when God, the God of life is at work in the world, people notice. The world takes notice. People see something going on. As we yield ourselves to the will of God, and as we say, not my will but yours, as we die to ourselves and give our lives away, as we worship in spirit and in truth, as we walk in the fullness of fellowship or koinonia, the world and the city of Boston will notice. They'll be drawn. People were made for life. People were made by this God of the spectacular, this God of life. They were made for him. And so when they see a community of people um, living that life, experiencing that life, yielding ourselves and our will and our wants to God and his will and his desire, they will notice and they'll see life in the people of God. And this is not the self-congratulatory life of an elite kind of club where there's a sort of smugness, a looking down upon. But this is, this is the life of uh, the humble life of sinners, saved by grace, of people who've been welcomed into God's own life by, by virtue of his grace and not because of any of their own doing. And when people see that, something will resonate. Something deep down, uh, which they beat in tune with, will actually resonate with this life and it will draw them in. And that's just true. That's just the reality. That's the, the, what we affirm in creation, that God made everybody for him. And that's what's going on in the story. So they come, they come to Peter and John in Solomon's portico. They're astounded, and they say, what in the world is going on? What's happening here? And the buzz, about, the buzz in the crowd is about Peter and John, like these guys are the two new superhero, superheroes of the first century. There's some kind of, wow, this is, this is something amazing. What did these men do? And Peter's response is, is wonderful and instructive and full and way too full for a Sunday evening um, alone. But he says basically at the beginning, he says, this has nothing to do with us. 
This has nothing to do with us. Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? The first thing that that Peter does is he deflects. He deflects attention from himself. There's all this interest in in who were these men that actually saw, that, that, that were the instruments through which this lame man was made well. And he says, no, 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 it's not about me. It's not about John. It's actually about Jesus. And to skip ahead to verse 16, he says, it's in his name, by faith in his name, that has made this man strong, whom you see and know, and the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. He deflects. He deflects. And he points to Jesus. Anything spectacular in the missional family, this first missional family, just like anything spectacular, which I'm using as a code word for life, in our missional family today, is not due to you or to me. It's not due to us. As Paul reminds us in 2 Corinthians 4, he says, we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. And not to us. In a world of self-promotion, in a world where everybody's trying to get the most hits on his or her website or YouTube video or Facebook page or blog, the Christian community is a counterexample. And we as Christians are to be a counterexample, like Peter here in this text. To deflect, to fade, to try to fade into the background and to exalt Jesus as the source of life, the source of the spectacular. We do not proclaim ourselves ever, but we proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord to a world that needs him. And that's exactly what Peter does here. So the spectacular draws people in. Life draws people in. It'll grab the attention. The question is, what will we say in response? What will we say in response? But as Peter begins to point the crowd to Jesus, he does something else too. And and this is a delicate part of what it means to be a missional family, to be missional. So he deflects and he points people to Jesus. But he also, he also um, does, he does this other thing. He said, you know, everybody longs for life. Everybody longs for it. It's part of being human. But at the same time that we all long for life, we actually all resist life as well. We all resist life as well. Or maybe it's, I can say it better by saying we actually all pursue life in all the wrong kinds of ways. So it's not that we're like saying, no, 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 give me death. I'd rather have death than life. Like, we're, we're actually saying, no, no, I want life, but we're, we're pursuing it in all these different avenues, all these ways. We, we think it's found in free love or to overthrow capitalism or new technological gadgets or good food or adventure or success at work or whatever it might be. We, we, we tend to attach life to these things. Maybe it's family. And we throw ourselves into these pursuits with gusto wanting to get from them what we find so elusive from when we tried it last year or last week or the day before or yesterday. Joy and life and peace. We, we long for these things. And sometimes we do it just because everybody else is doing it. And sometimes we do it even though we know better. But we all do it. We all pursue life in these other ways and we run for it. And, and that's what Peter starts to point out to the crowd that is gathered around him in the temple. These residents of Jerusalem who had been around eight weeks earlier when Jesus was actually crucified on the cross, that though drawn to the spectacular, drawn to this miracle of the, of the lame man made well, to life itself, they were going about things in the wrong way. And what he says is that the God that they claimed to serve was actually on the side of the, of the man that they killed and that they had a part in crucifying. 
There, there's so much in these, these verses. Uh, Peter makes it clear that God has glorified his servant Jesus. He says that in verse 13. He's glorified his servant Jesus, whom you have delivered over. And he makes it clear that the members of the crowd were implicated in this death of Jesus. You handed him over. You denied him. You disowned him. You asked for a murderer to be given to you instead of the author of life. You killed the author of life. That's a pretty harsh indictment, actually. But the indictment is is necessary. And it's fascinating in this sermon of Peter's to contrast life and death. And the basic kind of operating um, uh, thread through this this message is God is a God of life. But look at how life and death get get contrasted here. So God raised Jesus, his servant, from the dead. That's life. That's life being poured out into the world. Jesus himself is referred to as the author of life. That's either the source or the pioneer. Uh, the forerunner of life. And he's also referred to as the holy and righteous one, the holy and righteous one in verse 14. And that's an echo back to Isaiah 52 and 53, where, um, again, Isaiah is talking about the servant of God, and he's talking about him as the one who's the righteous one. And the servant there actually gives up his life to bring others peace and healing and righteousness, which is all about life. And then there's the miracle that's just taken place, which is about life. This, this lame man being made fully well and jumping up and leaping and praising God. So there's life all over the place. Life, life, life. And we read Isaiah 35 earlier, and, and it says there that the, the lame shall leap like a deer. Most people who read their Torah, read their scriptures, knew about this, this, this messianic age prophecy of Isaiah 35, that the lame would leap like a deer. And when they see this lame man leaping, there's a direct, a direct implication of this, that, that the age of life is coming. So there's life everywhere. But then on the, the contrast, they killed him. They denied life. In fact, they affirmed death and asking for a murderer to be given to them rather than the author of life. They actually asked for somebody who had taken life cheaply for his own ends, selfishly, in murder. And so though they truly long for life, as do all of us, they were on the side of death. They were against life on the wrong side. And that's so true of so much of our world and so much even of us on the inside. We pursue life in all the wrong ways. We lash out, we strike back, we take revenge, we withhold forgiveness, we lie to get the upper hand or a better deal, and when we see life, and when we see the spectacular, we are astounded, and we want it, we long for it. But we need to know, first and foremost, we need to know what Peter tells the people here, that actually we, we're, we're, on the, we're on the other side that we're, we're, we want this thing so deeply and so much, we, we long for it, but we're, we're actually running on the other side. Everybody in the earliest missional family knew that they too had been on the other side. Think about Peter, obviously, for just a second. He, he tells the people here, you denied him. What did Peter do? He denied him. The 3,000 that were baptized and repented and came to know Christ that first day on the day of Pentecost, they, they were cut to the heart. They knew that they too had been on the wrong side. There's, there's no entrance, there's no membership in the missional family. There's no welcoming into the, to the life of God apart from an acknowledgement and a recognition that we were loving death, that we were pursuing the other way. They were kind of running with, with all that we have the other direction. So, Peter bears witness to this. 
to these people. He upholds Jesus in word and in deed, but, but, but when people run to him to learn more, he and we have an obligation to say to those who are curious and interested in the spectacular that they, like us, have spent much of their lives on the side of death. Much of their lives running in the wrong direction. And of course, we do that with love and we do that with sensitivity as a missional family and we do that without an ounce of superiority in our proclamation to the world. But we do it. Because we're not actually inviting people from the good to the spectacular. We're, we're not inviting people from the better to the best. We're inviting people from a, five, uh, from a three-star restaurant to a five-star restaurant. This isn't just about kind of going from one degree to the next degree of life. This is actually about pointing out the fact that most of us, all of us, at some point or another, have been on the wrong side, actually opposed to all that God is and all that God is giving and pouring out to his world. And coming to see that deeply... And to know that personally, that, that we might embrace this other way. And that's what Peter go, that's where he goes next. So he points this out to them, and then he goes to this place next and starts in, in um, after telling them that they're on the wrong side. And he does this graciously in verse 17. He says, you know, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your rulers. And isn't that true for so many of us? That we act in ignorance when we run from the God of life, from the God who made us? when we start falling into these traps of pursuing life in all these other ways, we, we do it really kind of in ignorance, thinking that we're going to get something from those ways that they never are meant to give. They can't ever give them. And so there's a graciousness even in the, the conviction that Peter's bringing here. That says, yeah, you acted in ignorance, so there's a way out. There's a way for, for renewal. There's a way for restoration. And he calls them and says, um, this, he gives them this invitation to repent and to turn. Repentance is just about changing our mind. It's about saying, you know, I know I was on the wrong side before, but I'm going to flip it around. I'm going to change my mind. And it says turn here too in verse 18 or verse 19. Repent therefore and turn. Turn a different way. Come a different way. And he offers them three things as they do this. These three things, which all have to do with life. He says first, so that your sins may be blotted out. Paul writes in Romans 6, for the wages of sin is death. And we know that rebellion from God's ways, as we pursue that other way, always leads us down a road of of diminishment, of lesser and lesser life, ultimately to death. So all of that stuff, all of the anti-God stuff, all of the junk in my heart and in yours, much of which we're not even aware of, this stuff will be blotted out. The idea here is of, of the, the, um, the way of writing in the first century was on, on papyrus or something that could be wiped off, just kind of wiped out, blotted out, and wiped away. We read elsewhere that God has separated our sin from us as far as the east is from the west. So he offers them this, this cleansing, this, this being blotted out, which is life, because sin, this dirtiness that comes from it is, is an impediment to life. And he's saying, you know, God's going God's to wipe that out in your life and bring you more life. And the second thing is that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, that there will be these times of refreshing, that God brings refreshment. Think about the earliest community as we looked at Acts 2 for, for three weeks, that they knew the fullness of what it meant to be brought into community and, and, and to be sharing their goods and caring for one another and have glad and generous hearts and to, to eat together and to drink together and enjoy worship together and prayers together. That was refreshment. That's what they knew. 
And all of that came from the God of life. I was talking with somebody earlier this last week who had come to know Jesus later in life, in her late 30s or around 40 or so. And she had had this nagging issue in her life that she couldn't resolve, just couldn't deal with, couldn't get over. And when she came to finally embrace Jesus, she said that issue just kind of dissipated. It just disappeared in her life. And it was, that was an example of the kind of refreshment that Jesus brings to wounded, broken people like us. And it comes from the Lord and it's life and it's human life as it was meant to be. And the third thing that Peter says is going, that this is going to bring is that, is that um, as you repent and turn, is that Jesus, this one who, who heaven keeps, will come at some point and restore all things. The Christ appointed for you, Jesus, is to bring about the restoration of all things. God is going to make all things new, he says. And his life is going to prevail even in a more comprehensive way in this world of death. You know, groceries have an expiration date. Technological gadgets eventually wear out and and don't work anymore. Our bodies wear wear down and finally they do wear out. But a day is coming when these things will no longer be true. These things will no longer be the default. There will not be atrophy anymore. Everything won't go from being wound up to wound down. God will infuse the world with his grace and his power. And this Messiah, Jesus, will return and restore all things. That is a message of life, a message of life. So Peter offers these things of life to a people who are pursuing death, the people, the very people that had put Jesus onto the cross. And this is the astonishing thing of this text, is that God who made us and God who gave us what life that we do know, the God who, um, who sent his son Jesus into the world, actually extends an invitation. It's in, in verse 26, the last verse of this section, it says, God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first. Why? To bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. I love how the Bible doesn't really mince its words. You know, we don't often kind of go around and say, I want to bless you and introduce you to Jesus so that you can be turned from your wickedness. But that's what, the, that's what Peter says here. It's, it's a statement that God, the God who you rejected, the God who you rebelled against, the God who you resist, every time that you lie, every time that, that you pursue something selfish, every time that you, that you don't love another person, and you, you, you push your hand in his face, that God has actually sent Jesus, the resurrected Jesus to you, in the presence of this miraculous healing, to come and to give you life. To undo the cycle of death that you've found yourself in, that you can't seem to get out of, that's frustrating, that's the rut that you're stuck in, day after day after day. He sent him to you to offer you life. And it's an astonishing thing that this God, whom they had actually killed on the cross. They had rejected and denied him. He comes, and his first step is to bless them. But the blessing comes not just, sometimes we want God to bless us in our wickedness. We want God like, come just kind of give me life in the life that I want. But he sends, he sends this messenger for the risen Christ, Peter, to turn them from these ways of death. He loves them so much. To turn them from these ways. To bless them and to give them life. And that's the astonishing thing of the gospel. 
And that's the astonishing thing that the earliest missional family knew to the core. They knew it personally. And now we see Peter in proclaiming, you know, this thing that just happened, this life to this lame man, this this resurrection kind of life and picture has come from the God that you resisted, but he's come to bless you and to turn you and to give you life in him. That's what we've been recipients of. We've been brought into the spectacular. We've been brought into life. And like Peter, that's now what we are now heralds of in the world around us. In faithfulness to this Jesus, not, again, in any way elevated above, but as servants who come from below, who wash the feet of the world around us, who become servants, who bear the cross. But we invite people into life by turning and embracing, tasting and seeing that the Lord is good. Amen.